This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. This morning, please, to John's Gospel, chapter 14. John's Gospel, chapter 14. And just uh, reading verse 1, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. You believe in God, believe also in me. You're the sum of what you believe. What you believe will directly affect and shape your present and your future. What you believe will have influence over your family and friends. What you believe will forge your decisions and your choices. What you believe will reflect in your attitudes and in your thinking. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And I believe that this is so important because truth, what we believe is under attack. Isaiah 59, 14 says that truth has fallen in the street. It's being trampled upon. It's up for grabs. We live in a generation that says regarding morals or ethics or spirituality that there are no absolutes. It is what you make it. Uh, truth can be what you want it to be, in other words. If you don't like what somebody else's truth is, you have your own truth. So we all can make up our own minds about anything and everything. And who's to say you're right and I'm wrong or I'm right and you're wrong? <coughs> Uh, that's what we mean by no absolutes. And so it's dependent upon how we feel our sense of morality, our cultural beliefs. In other words, it's subjective. It's subject to how we think and how we feel rather than actually be true. And so when it comes to our morality, our spirituality, our ethics, then what you believe is absolutely vitally important. Actually, what you believe will affect your whole eternal destiny. And so it's important to know what we believe. Of course, in our culture or subculture, or however we were raised, all of that does have a bearing, no doubt, on what we believe. Our belief in God will reflect this. Obviously, a Hindu in India, a Buddhist in Tibet, or a Christian, or anybody in the West will have an entirely different view on exactly who or what God is. So we need to know who God is. The Western view of Christ, which for many, many years was solid and sure, but it's blurry now. It's confused. People don't know what to think any longer. Uh, and, and we have lost our distinctives. Uh, and the Word of God is under attack again. And church attendance in the Western world has dropped dramatically. 
Yes, it's risen in South America and, and, and it's risen in Africa and other parts of the world, but in the Western world, it's dramatically dropped. The number of people going to church in Great Britain is shameful, actually. And it's dropped in Ireland, never mind the rest of the UK. And in fact, every time you turn on TV, somebody somewhere is lampooning Christianity or organized religion, and they're making a joke of it and fun of it or slagging it off or whatever, and that's just day and daily. It is reported that there are 127 religions in Great Britain now. 127. In the last census, when people were putting down the religion, someone put down Jedi from Star Wars. <laughs> I suspect, though, that a lot of that was, a, was a, a protest against being actually asked what your religion is. So they just put Jedi. And people who <laughs> never go to church, who never open the Bible, who don't even believe in God, uh, many of them say, well, I'm spiritual. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Whatever that means to them, I don't know. So where am I going with all this? Well, the early church, they faced exactly the same dilemma. In the first few centuries of the early church, it came under ferocious attack against truth. There were at least five major errors that had crept into the New Testament church. Uh, and Peter and Paul and Jude and others wrote against it, trying to tell the church, this is what we truly believe. Not that stuff, but this. And so they were constantly trying to refute error. <coughs> Some today are now teaching what's called universalism. In other words, God's going to reconcile everybody, including the very devil himself. And, and everybody will be saved and everybody will go to God's heaven. And of course, that's nonsense. It's anti-scripture. But many believe that. There's preachers preaching that today. And it's crept into the church again. And so there's no need to preach the cross or forgiveness or judgment to come or, or hell or anything like that. Because why would you bother if God's going to save everybody anyway? Uh, some are even teaching that God didn't send the Son to die on the cross for us because that wouldn't be a loving God. No loving God would send his own Son to die for somebody else. And that's the logic in that argument. Of course, it's completely wrong. Some of them even has gone as far to say, one preacher in England went as far to say that it's cosmic child abuse. And so all of these errors were all in the first few centuries. Uh, dressed up differently, but the same devil with a different hat on. Yeah, right. There's nothing new. Right. It just keeps coming along from time to time. So Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. You believe in God. What exactly does that mean? Well, preaching to a church full of believers. You say, David, that's a no-brainer. I mean, come on. Of course we believe in God. Some of us have believed in God all of our lives. And not only just believe that he exists, but believe in him. We trust him, we love him, we serve him, we follow him. And so, that's wonderful, but that's not the same for everybody. And increasingly, 
in the Western world. Uh, the, the little boy's mom's just went into the crash. If you want to take him into the crash there, because he doesn't know where it is. Find his mom for him. There's nothing like finding your mom when you need her. Sure there's not. There we go. <laughs> and so it's not so obvious anymore. Now, maybe to us as an older generation, it's obvious, but a younger generation growing up are bombarded daily uh, with, the, with the, the, the notion that the Bible's wrong, that there is no God, that evolution's right, that science is God now. And so you just can't take it for granted that everybody believes in God, even that exists, never mind believe in him, trust in him. And so to some that God's just an impersonal force, just a, some kind of a power or essence. To Hindu, God is, is pantheistic. Uh, pan means all and theos is God, so it's God is all and all is God. You know, God's in the rocks, he's in the snakes, he's in the trees, he's in the ocean, he's in the birds, he's in us, he's in everything. He's all, everything's God. To a Muslim, God is Allah of the Quran, very different from the God of the Bible that we know. To the agnostic, God is unknowable. Well, nobody can really know God. We're not even sure if God exists. I like to think he did, but can't be sure. To the deist, uh, God is the creator, but he's completely detached from his creation. He created the world for us, and then he stepped back, and he's never been bothered with it ever since. Just like somebody winding up a watch and then stepping back and just let it run itself. That's the deist. To the dualist, uh, to the dualist, it, it's, it's two equal opposing forces, and neither one gets the mastery. You know, it's God and it's the devil, it's good, it's evil, it's yin, it's yang. And that's the whole premise behind Star Wars, by the way. That's what George Lucas believes. Sorry, Star Wars fans, that's what it's based on. And then, some are the esoteric types, so they, they just declare that, well, uh, if you could only see the God or the Goddess inside you, you would understand that really you're your own God. And, and so for somebody to simply say, I believe God, well, what God are they talking about here? We can't be sure anymore. You just can't take it for granted it's a God of the Bible anymore. It's particularly of a younger generation. And so we often reduce God to a God of our, of our own liking. You know, that's why you hear people saying things like, well, if I was God, there would be no wars. If I was God, there'd be no murder. There'd be no rapes. If I was God, there'd be no injustice. There'd be no unfairness. If I was God. So I say to such a person, well, would you like God to overrule your free will? Would you like that? Would you like God to stop in your life all the things that he hates that you're doing? Would you like God to do that without even asking you? You know, you say, well, if I was God, there'd be no innocents killed. There'd be no innocents slaughtered. Really? So then you would be against abortion if you were God then? 
You see, we, we make a God of our own liking. We think, well, if I was God, well, this is what I would do. Well, we're not God. And we need to be very careful what we accuse God of. Somebody has said that it's remarkable that the Bible, which is a rather big book about God, never sets out to prove God exists. The Bible writers never tried to prove that God existed. As far as they were concerned, that was just taken for granted. In the beginning, God. No explanation. Take it or leave it. In the beginning, God. Now, I think there's lots of evidence, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But they didn't set out to try to prove it, that God exists. It was taken right from the start, in the beginning, God. David declares in Psalm 53 and 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, when the Bible says the fool, it's not talking about somebody's lack of academic ability. It's not talking about their brain power. Stephen Hawking, he's not long dead there. Remember the guy in the wheelchair who spoke through the synthesizer? Was arguably the brainiest, the smartest man in the whole world on a level with Einstein. And yet he didn't believe in God. He says we don't need God. God doesn't exist. So the Bible calls him a fool because it's not a problem with the head, it's a problem with the heart. That's why Hebrews 11 says, he that comes to God must believe that he is. And that takes faith to believe that he is. Faith is a connection between God the creator and his creation. Hebrews 11.6, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The Apostle Paul, writing in Romans chapter 1, let me just read this verse for you. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So God made this world and made creation in this world and around this world and the universe for man to look at and say, there must be a God. <laughs> but many suppress that, put that down, deny that. But God says they're without excuse if they do that. And so there are a number of arguments for the existence of God. And theologians like to use big words, all right? So big words like marmalade and furniture. <laughs> so I'm going to use a few big words, but I'll explain them. They're very, very simple. 
here's a number of arguments for the existence of God. The cosmological argument, the cosmological argument. Cosmos, the Greek word, means world. Looking at the world. And the argument looks at the world and, ar and argues from the premise of cause and effect. For every effect, there had to be a cause. Simple. If a man saw a watch for the first time and he marveled at the incredible detail engineering and the complexity of the movement of the watch, he would have to conclude and would naturally conclude that somebody designed that. That that effect had a cause. Someone was the cause of that effect. And anybody with one atom of a brain would say, yes, of course, that is the truth. But then they go on to say, but life doesn't have a cause. It doesn't have a first cause. It just happened out of nothing, out of nowhere. Boom, it just happened. No. Are you trying to tell me that the complexity of this whole world we live in, the complexity of our bodies that we stand in, the complexity of the universe around us, that that just happened by accident? Yes, that's what they try to tell us. Professor Anthony Flew just died a couple of years ago, maybe three <laughs> years ago, regarded as one of the great thinkers of the 20th century, an atheist to the core all of his life denied the existence of God. But later in his scientific investigations relating to the origins of life, it led him to an astounding conclusion, especially for an evolutionary atheist, that life must have had an intelligent designer. Here's what he said. And, and by the way, this shook the atheist word and the evolutionary word that shook it to the core. I mean, it was, <laughs> there was papers written about it. Here's what he said. It now seems to me that the findings of more than 50 years of DNA research have provided materials for a new and enormous powerful argument to design. What I think the DNA material has done is that it is shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have involved in getting these extraordinary diverse elements to work together. Now that's an atheist talk, and that's not a creationist or a Christian. That is a hardcore atheist who still would not admit to the God of the Bible and didn't to the day he died, but had to admit the logic of it was that there had to be an intelligence behind this because this design could not have happened by itself. It's a pity he hadn't taken the extra step and said, yes, there is a God in heaven because that's the only logical next step, but he didn't do that as far as we know. Hmm. In Psalm 19, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, 
and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. He, he has set, he, in them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end and there is nothing hidden from its heat. All of that was to show mankind there is a God, a creator God, an intelligent, a super intelligent, creative God who made all of that and who made us. So there's the cosmological argument. And then there's the teleological argument. The teleological argument. This is the argument not only for design, but for design with a purpose for a design with the purpose. The harmony and unity of nature supposes a purpose. Everything around us has purpose. This building was built with purpose. The car you drive was built with purpose. The seat you're sitting on has purpose. The clothes you wear has purpose. The food you eat has purpose. And everybody knows that and agrees with that, including the evolutionist. But then they say, but there's no overall purpose to life. Well, life is over, that's it. There never was a purpose. How ridiculous, how illogical. How can you argue that everything around us has purpose but in the bigger picture, why we're here, there is no purpose. It's a foolish argument that's made. All design has a purpose. Anybody that's designing anything today, they're designing it for a purpose. And God made us for a purpose. He made this world for us out of the Billions and billions and untold billions of galaxies and suns and planets that are out there. There's this little one here, and it's got purpose. We're on it, and he made it for us. And the complexity of design is amazing. The fine-tuning for us to live on Earth is mind-boggling. And even the scientists have to admit that. They all admit that it's amazing and mind-boggling, but they still would not admit there is a God, that God created this. How foolish can man be? The anthropological argument. The anthropological argument, the Greek word for man is anthropos. So this is the argument that man is the highest of God's creative acts. Man is the supreme creation of God. We are. There is no animal, there is no being quite like us. Unique in every single way. And every one of us is unique in our own way. And God made us in his image. His stamp is upon us. You are superior in design, superior intelligence, superior in will. All of that and more sets you apart from the rest of creation. 
and it's wonderful. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, the psalmist said. That sets us apart. That's a good argument for the existence of God because there's nothing else like us. No monkey has ever painted like Monet. No matter how smart they tell you they are, compared to us, us, it pales into insignificance. We are his highest creation. Psalmist says, when I consider the sun, the moon, and the stars, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you visited him. God sent his son to this earth for us. Not for the animals, for us. The ontological argument. I see, I told you these were big words, but they're not too hard to explain. Not only that man is an intelligent being, but that man is an intuitive being. Man intuitively, instinctively believes in God. But many suppress that belief, put that belief down. When somebody's born into this world, they have to learn science, biology, geometry, geology. They have to learn all that. They weren't born with that knowledge. They had to learn that. But every human being was born with a sense of God, of something beyond us. That's why it says in Ecclesiastes 3 that God has set eternity in our hearts. It's inbuilt. We have to fight it to deny it. It's natural. That's the way that God made us. And that's a good example and another reason to believe in the existence of God. Because he didn't make us robots. He made us not just with intelligence, but with intuition. We're able to perceive and think and understand and sense. And every man that's born has some sense of God and eternal things. And that's why we look beyond this life. And to deny that is to suppress that. And then there is the moral argument. The man has a conscience. He senses right from wrong. He feels guilty, remorseful, and sorry. Morality is inbuilt. Now, the argument today for those who are non-believers in God is no. No, we, we lear- it's learned behavior. We, we learned that from our family, from a culture we live in, from where we were brought up and where we were born, uh, and the society and all. It's all learned behavior. Well, if that is the case, why, why does somebody brought up in that all that has been wrong and immoral and unethical and unjust that they fought against that. Where did that desire to fight against that come from? It's inbuilt. 
It's inbuilt. It's in every human being. God has given every man a conscience. Now we can deny our conscience. We can have our conscience seared. We can fight against our conscience, but it's there. And God has given it to us. And so today, those who are non-believers in God, those who are atheists or evolutionists even, they say, no, 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 you don't need God. When you, when you talk about morality, you don't need God. It was all learned. <laughs> Somehow it's in you from a child, isn't it? The smallest child. <laughs> and we've all, we've all had, all of us who have had children learn very, very fast that they can just go against your wishes. <laughs> and when they get up a bit as big as teenagers, you can really go against them. You have to deal with that, haven't you? But it's inbuilt. It's inbuilt. And so for moral laws to exist, there must be a moral lawgiver. There has to be a yardstick. You know, one of the reasons why God gave the Ten Commandments was a yardstick. Because people had got to the stage where they didn't know good from evil anymore. So God gave them a yardstick. Thou shalt not... And once they had that yardstick, they could no longer say, well, we don't know. Yes, you do know. I'm telling you what's right and what's wrong. And so there's a, a yardstick, and God made the yardstick for us. Now, all these arguments I've given you, all of them are from reason. You can reason those out to be so. But the best argument for God is not from reason. It's from revelation. It's from Revelation. This is where faith comes in. Reason can only take you so far. But you need Revelation to go further. You need faith to go further. Reason can get you to the place where you can look around and say, yes, there must be a God. Yes, I believe that God exists. Wonderful, that's good. Reason did that. But to get further, do you believe in God? Not just that he is there, that exists, but do you believe in him? Have your relationship with him? Do you follow him? That takes revelation. That takes the Holy Spirit of God coming into your life and beginning to reveal God to you in a way that you never knew him before. That's why it's interesting, isn't it? We mentioned this last Sunday. It's interesting how that Jesus in the New Testament, he exposed his disciples to a view of God that they weren't accustomed to. That God is our Heavenly Father personally. Not just nationally, as the Jews believed. Not just in a creation way, as they believed. That every man's a son of God by creation. But he's our Father personally. And that's why he used the term Abba Father. That's why Paul picked up on it in his writings, his letters. In John's gospel, Jesus used the word Father well over a hundred times. In John 20, 17, Jesus spoke to Mary Magdalene about ascending to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. See how he put the two together, God and Father. Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, Our Father, which art in heaven. <coughs> Father also speaks of our adoption. I don't have time to go into adoption. 
all men are created sons of God, but only believers are the adopted sons of God. So we go from reason to revelation, and that's where we are today. It's wonder, reason's wonderful. I like to reason things out. That's good. God has given us a mind to reason things out. That's good, but can only take you so far. We need revelation to live the Christian life. If God refers to his omniscience, he's all-seeing, all-knowing. And Father speaks of his omnipresence, he's ever near. He's not just the, the most high God, the transcendent God. He's the most nigh God, the eminent God. Hallelujah. He's not up there somewhere. He sent his son down here where we are, where we live. And when he went back, what did he say? I'll send my Holy Spirit to live in you to be very near, to be as close as possible. And almighty, because we believe that God the Father is almighty. And that speaks of his omnipotence, his great power. This is the God whom we love and serve. This is who the God who, although was far off, came near by his son, the Lord Jesus. We're almost finished. We also believe that God is the creator of all things. Now, when it comes to this truth, this brings us into serious conflict with the prevailing thinking of today that goes right across our whole education system, right across our museums, even to the giant's causeway. Remember the big row there was? where some of our politicians wanted to have something in there regarding creation. And what a row that happened. It's the same in the Austrian Museum where someone, well, let's, let's, let's have the other side. Let's have the creation. They say, oh, no, no, I can't do that. It's not scientific. And so there's that battle that goes on today. And evolutionists, many scientists have fought vigorously against the biblical account of creation in Genesis 1. And sadly, for a long time, churches wilted and caved into that, didn't want to appear unscientific in a scientific age. And so they gave in. But the church is pushing back today. It's not giving in anymore. There's organizations like Answers in Genesis and organizations like Creation Ministries International who are pushing back and who are demolishing these theories and are showing creation to be a truth for those who want to know. In fact, in America, some states now are bringing back the biblical account of creation into their schoolroom as a counterbalance against evolution. We're very fortunate in Northern Ireland that we've got SUs in our schools and we've got all kinds of groups for Christians to tell. We're very, very fortunate, really. Really. In America, that is just not allowed. And increasingly in England, it's being done away with. Increasingly. And so the first few chapters of Genesis becomes a battleground. And here's the problem. If we can't believe the Genesis account of creation, what else can't we believe? That's a big issue. Were the stories of Jesus, were they also a myth? <coughs> 
If we can't believe in the Genesis account of creation, why should we believe the Gospel's account of the virgin birth? And that's the upshot of it. You say, well, you know, people of my age and older ones here perhaps, you say, well, I don't even think about that. I don't even have to worry about that. That's fine. You're not at school anymore. You're not at university anymore. It's a different world out there than the one you grew up in. And these are the core issues that are being fought daily in schools, higher places of education, universities, at work, everywhere. People are losing their jobs because of it. There's people in NASA, smart people who's putting rockets up there, sending men to the moon and beyond, and they're losing their jobs because they believe in the biblical account of creation. Nothing to do with what they're doing in their workplace, but just because they believe that they're being kicked out. If you can't believe in Noah's flood, why should you believe in the resurrection? If you can't believe in Adam and Eve as literal people in a literal Eden, why should you believe that Jesus is the literal Son of God who came to this earth? Because that's the logic. If you can't believe that, why should you believe that? If that's wrong, can this be right? Where are we in this? And once you start to say, well, that's wrong, or, or we're not sure about that, well, then we're not sure about that either. And you end up, you don't know what to believe. And sadly, some Christians don't know what to believe because they haven't committed to the truth. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis are fundamental to our understanding of why this works and the mess it's in today. Because not only does it talk about creation, but it talks about sin coming into the world, and it talks about death, and it talks then about a redeemer that was to come, and it talks about forgiveness and mercy and all the rest of it. All of that to deal with mankind is in the first 11 chapters. That's why it's being attacked because if they can demolish that, when you come to the New Testament, well, who's going to believe that? Yeah? Who's going to believe that? Well, I don't believe that a great big fish swallowed a man. Okay. So then it's easy to say, well, I don't believe that Jesus could turn water into wine or he could walk on the sea. See the logic in that? And that's what's happening. That's why it's being done, so that we do not believe. And then there's people who are theistic evolutionists. That means they believe God used evolution to further nature. He's the creator, but once he created it, then he used evolution to continue that. Theistic evolutionists. The trouble is they constantly try to play down the Genesis account, the literalness of it. And then they try to make, uh, many of them try to make it, well, Adam and Eve wasn't a real person. They weren't real people. That was just a story. That was just a metaphor. That was just God trying to teach us some truth. But actually, you can't really believe that. John Gibson, who's a typical theistic evolutionist, in other words, he's somebody who believes in God as a creator, but God then used evolution. Here's what he says. There never was such a place as the Garden of Eden, nor was there ever a historical person called Adam who lived in it. Now, that's not an atheist talking. That's a Christian that's a person who believes in God. And you say, well, there's not many folk who believe that. Really? Let me tell you, there's some Bible schools teaching this today. Yes? So we're in serious trouble if we don't believe the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Where does that lead to? At least to what I've just said. 
I'll say again, you older Christians, you say, well, David, what are you telling me this for? I haven't got a problem. Yes, but your children and your grandchildren have got a problem. And if we can't convince them, then we're in serious trouble. And this is one of the reasons why Christianity is dipped dramatically in the Western world because it's constantly being attacked and young people are not given answers. They're not furnished with answers for this and they don't know what to say. Recently, I'll close with this. Recently, one of the most popular Christian singer-songwriters has written some great songs, by the way. Some will be singing here. He's written a song recently about God and creation. It's widely sung around the world. But he mentions evolution in it. I think it's taken the task. And I read his explanation. And I think it was even more confused than he was when I read his explanation. It was rambling. But the bottom line of it was, to me, it was theistic evolution. He says... Evolution is an undeniable fact. And that God used that to further nature. Oh yes, God's a creator, but he used evolution to further the nature. See, it creeps into the church. And the trouble is then young people start to sing that. So then when they go to university and they talk about evolution, oh, well, yeah, we believe in that. Sure, we sing that in church. It really is troubling times. You say, well, it doesn't really matter about the first 11 chapters of Genesis. All we've got to do is believe in Jesus as our Savior. Our sins are washed in the blood. We look to the cross, so we don't really need to concern ourselves with that. But here's the problem. If we do not believe that, the first 11 chapters, we're not believing the authority of God's Word. And once you stop believing in the authority of God's word, then that leads you down a path of foolishness and leads you away from God, not to God. That's why it's important. That's why Christians are standing up today and fighting against it because they realize there's a new generation coming up and if the devil can get them not to believe in the authority of God's word, they're beat before they start because it doesn't matter what you believe in. If you doubt that, you're going to doubt everything else. So it's not just enough for us anymore. Certainly, if you're talking to an older generation, that's fine. They understand they're not going to doubt the existence of God. But often when you're talking to a younger generation, these are the things that are in their mind because this is what they're being hit with day and daily. So we need to give them an answer. We need to give them an answer. We need to reason with them, and then revelation comes. If God just overrules that and gives revelation, wonderful. But more often than not, you've got to give them a reason to believe. Say, this is truth. This is what God's word says, and here's the evidence of it. And then you can lead them to revelation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the validity of your word. That not one jot or tittle will fail. Hallelujah. That is infallible, inerrant in every way. So, Lord, we trust your word. We thank you for all the, over the centuries, the many that has given their lives in defense of your word. So, Lord, with our words today, we defend it.
and we trust it. And help us, Lord, with this new generation coming up that we may be able to have confidence in your word with them. That they may see our confidence in your word and that, that will rub off onto them. So we give you thanks for truth today. You are the God of all truth and Satan is the father of all lies. And so we bless you for that. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.